seaside resorts on two coasts, volcano and jungle expeditions, a naturalist's eco-dream come true, all in a stable democracy with a peace-loving people. We're taking a fresh look at the appeal of Costa Rica today on Travel with Rick Steves. Costa Rica is sometimes called the Switzerland of Latin America. It's remarkably different from its neighbors in Central America. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, travel writer Christopher Baker joins us to offer a taste of what makes Costa Rica such a hit with visitors. This wildlife is everywhere and it loves to put on a song and dance. This tiny country comes with giant thrills. Zipline rides in the jungle, river rafting, rodeos, sports fishing, waterfall hikes, and more species of exotic birds and butterflies than you can count. Costa Ricans brag that their country enjoys an abundance of pura vida, that's the pure life. We'll find out why in the hour ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Vamanos, amigos. For a Latin American welcome to one of the most beautiful destinations in our hemisphere, you can't beat Costa Rica. I'm Rick Steves, and today on Travel with Rick Steves, we're exploring an eco-paradise with an amazingly varied terrain, all in a tidy package of a country where democracy is the rule. To explain what Costa Rica has to offer visitors from the north, we're joined by Christopher Baker. Chris has been with us before. He's one of the top travel experts and authors on Cuba. His industry awards include multiple Lowell Thomas Awards and Travel Journalist of the Year by the Caribbean Tourism Organization. His latest project is authoring a new comprehensive edition of the Moon Handbook to Costa Rica. Chris, thanks for joining us. Hello, Rick. It's a pleasure to be back with you. Costa Rica really is an anomaly in Central America, isn't it? It really is, you know, and that struck me the first time I went down there. Uh, I went about 20 years ago to do a magazine story on a spa resort and uh, was down at the beach uh, working out, doing yoga and whatnot at uh, 6 or 7 a.m. with the monkeys. And every evening during the program, we'd have a medic or a health specialist come and give a presentation. And then one day, two ladies on the program disappeared and they arrived next day visibly enhanced and it just suggested to me that uh, Costa Rica is unique. It's um, the fact that you can go under the knife without fear of waking up next day and finding your kidneys for sale on eBay. Said a lot about Costa Rica, um, a tremendously developed, evolved country, very peaceful, fantastic education system, educated people, uh, very pacific. As you said, uh, they disbanded their army in 1949, and it has been neutral. Um, they're very proud of a democracy that has proven to be a very stable democracy without any of the problems that we associate with some of their neighbors. And I think Costa Rica's had a little bit of an advantage. And, and enlighten me on this a little bit, Christopher, if you can. My understanding is Costa Rica is, it doesn't have as many indigenous peoples. It doesn't have as many Indians. And this means that it's 94 percent what, white, or what do you what do you call the, the Tico? Well, that's very true, and it's very important to raise that point to understand why Costa Rica is what it is today, uniquely in that isthmus, because lacking uh, a very strong indigenous culture on the eve of the arrival of Columbus and the, the Spanish, etc., it lacked the... It, it did not have the framework of feudalism that was later put in place in Mexico, Guatemala, etc. So a lot of the, the Spanish settlers were poor. They farmed their own land. They didn't have an indigenous labor force to work the land mm. for them. So it evolved very much, if you will, as a society of a relative equality and, of course, a very white one relative to the other countries with their large indigenous populations. So are you saying a couple hundred years ago when European settlers or conquistadors came, they found this beautiful land with almost no indigenous people there and they just settled it? Yeah, it's not to say none. There were some, right. but there are there's certainly none of the pyramids, for example, of Guatemala and uh, Belize and right. uh, the Mayans and Incas. There's nothing like that. There never was. It was a bit of a backwater in pre-Columbian days and remained so during colonial days, not least because it is such a mountainous country, uh, deep valleys, etc., uh, relatively uh, limited um, plains, those plains that do exist back, at least back in the colonial days, were heavily, heavily forested and not uh, not populated to any great degree. And then do I remember correctly that Costa Rica is one country that never really found itself on the buffet line of American and European colonialism? <laughs> well, to some degree, of course, in the late 19th century, when um, I should just let me back up and say that um, Costa Rica really found its economic footing for the first time 
in the beginning of the 19th century when coffee was established, uh, a perfect place for growing coffee. And because of its lack of feudalism, etc., a great portion of the populace were landowners were able to benefit from growing coffee. And then in the middle, late part of the 19th century, they built railroads, particularly to Limon on the Atlantic seaboard, to ship down the coffee beans. And once that railroad was in place, the man who was in charge of building the railroad, a man called Minor Keith, an American, started the Boston Fruit Company that later became the United Fruit Company. Then the banana companies went into Costa Rica, and then, of course, we know about a relatively sordid history of United Fruit Company in its early years in Nicaragua, Honduras, Panama, and in fact in Costa Rica also. But uh, in other regards, no, and to answer your question, a relative lack of heavy-handed colonialism, certainly um, none of the U.S. imperialism um, to be seen in Costa Rica's history. All right, and you mentioned the Banana Company and so on, and it brings to mind this term we have, Banana Republic. How do you, Christopher, define a Banana Republic, and how does that apply to Costa Rica? Well, I think the common conception of what a Banana Republic is is a Central American nation that is being ruled by a fairly ruthless dictator where democracy is not well established. And, of course, uh, Costa Rica does not fit that mold, never really has fit that mold, and we're very fortunate, too, to again keep bringing up this history of um, the kind of equal society, if you will. The first president of Costa Rica in the 19th century was a teacher. And uh, educators are held in such uh, high esteem that Costa Ricans love to quote the fact that we have more educators than policemen. Hmm. And this uh, sense of liberalism was established at a very early stage in the 19th century, and has been a tradition that the Costa Ricans hold on to with tremendous pride. You know, there have been some hiccups in the democratic system over the past uh, 150 years or so, but it has not had brutal dictators uh, of the likes of Panama, etc. Christopher, I want to get back to that banana republic business, because my understanding is a lot of these um, banana republics were controlled by uh, big, huge business interests of big corporations that wanted their natural resources, and they would put their economy really reliant on one basic export, bananas or coffee or whatever, and then it would be easier to manipulate those economies and, and keep the people down, and that was possible because you'd have a dictator that was in cahoots with the big industry that was exporting their natural resources. So a local elite would be enriched. And of course, it'd be great for business for the company that was exporting those natural resources. But the local people would be kept down and that would sow seeds of discord that would come up later when you'd have these uh, civil wars of poor people against the uh, economic elites. Does, does that have anything to do in your mind with the banana republic? Well, absolutely. I mean, you've defined it very well. And of course, the United Fruit Company was present in Costa Rica and not paying its work as well, etc., and suppressing them in a sense. But nonetheless, the, the very early stage of formulation of a working democracy that was responsive to the populace was also in place. Uh, you didn't have the great, powerful, and limited number of oligarchs that you had in other countries. And of course, coffee was the most important crop, outstripping bananas by so a good degree. they were able to take advantage of things that they could export profitably to the United States and not have it create a, a really stratified populace like other neighboring countries might have suffered. Very true. Oscar Arias is probably the most famous Costa Rican, I think. He was a Nobel Prize winning president from what, the 1980s or 90s? Is that right? Um, the late 70s, early 80s, that's correct. He brokered the peace accord that ended the Sandinista and other Central American wars and won the Nobel Prize for it. Didn't he frustrate the United States because he refused to uh, de develop an army in his country? Well, not that he <laughs> refused to develop an army. Of course, um, when the Sandinistas took power in Nicaragua, the Contras were operating out of Costa Rica to try and topple the the Sandinistas in Nicaragua, Costa Rica was becoming quite destabilized, not least because of arm twisting by Washington, by the Reagan administration. And um, you're quite correct that Reagan did not like the fact that Oscar Arias uh, refused to be drawn into the conflict and chose instead to broker peace. My understanding of the reason to have an army in Central America is to defend your country against your own people. And if you don't uh, have to defend your country against your own people, in other words, if you have a real democracy, you don't really need an army. Well, that's very true. And uh, in fact, the army was disbanded, uh, ironically, by the person who led a civil war 
to topple the government, took power for about 18 months, disbanded the army, and created neutrality. What a concept, huh? <laughs> what yeah, a concept. And then handed, but, but get this, Rick, and then handed power over to the person not of his own party who had won the election that was challenged and uh, resulted in the civil war when all the ballots were went up in flames the day after the election. They had a civil war? Uh, well, a brief civil war. It lasted about two weeks. And what year was that? Uh, 1948. Okay. But more yes. recently, they've had it uh, pretty smooth sailing that way. Costa Rica is a country of four million. While they are pretty uh, relatively peaceful and stable, they do have some corruption. What's this concept of the chorizo? Um, chorizo... <laughs> It's basically the sausage, the bite of the sausage, if you will. Politicians have been known to, um, you know, fill their pockets, if you will, and do favors for their friends, you know, the elite of the political scene. And in fact, three of the recent past four presidents have been indicted on corruption charges. One of them lives in Switzerland, cannot return to Costa Rica wow. uh, because of the charges against him. Are they called chorizos or how does that spicy sausage work in? <laughs> um, well, that's their local term for somebody who wants a bite of the sausage, I guess. Uh, ah, okay. I'm not quite sure of the exact um, <laughs> the exact meaning of it, but there is actually a board game called Chorizo. We have our monopoly, of course, in uh, North America, <laughs> and the, the Costa Ricans have Chorizo, which is a you know it's a kind of monopoly game, but it's basically uh, it's all around corruption. How to get ahead um, playing hardball with the corrupt exactly, economy? Exactly. Yeah. I'm talking with Christopher Baker. He's the author of the Moon Handbook to Costa Rica, and I tell you, I had so much fun reading through this guidebook in preparation for this interview. And it not only makes me want to go to Costa Rica, but it reminds me of the importance of having a good guidebook. Christopher, if you were to sum up the T, what are the local people called? Tika, Tika people? Ticos. Ticos. What is the Ticos identity in a cliche kind of way? How do the other people look at the, the Ticos, the people of Costa Rica? They define themselves. They define their culture around the kind of elements that we've already discussed that distinguish the nation itself from the neighbors. And so they, they look at themselves as a people, as a Pacific people, an educated people, a progressive people. And that's very important. Liberalism is very strong there. And a people with a longer lifespan than uh, people of the United States. Exactly. They, they have a tremendous, uh, you know, it's got faults, but they have a tremendous health system that uh, is uh, state-run. And, um, yes, the longevity of uh, the average Costa Rican exceeds that of your average North American. I'm Rick Steves. We're speaking with Christopher Baker and our destination today, Costa Rica. Eight seven seven three 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 Ricks our number. Radio at ricksteves.com is the email address. We'll take your calls and emails for Christopher Baker with your questions and stories about Costa Rica in just a moment. It's Travel with Rick Steves. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm joined by Christopher Baker. Christopher writes the Moon Handbook to Costa Rica. Christopher, when you talk about Costa Rica, you're talking about, uh, you mentioned in your book, a microcontinent itself with 12 ecological zones, with wildlife both abundant and accessible. Double the bird species in little Costa Rica that you'd find in all of the United States. Talk a little bit about that. 
Oh, this is what I love about Costa Rica. It, it, it really is like a microcontinent. It's a diminutive place, really, no bigger than West Virginia. Of course, it's got the Caribbean and the Pacific, the two coasts. It's uh, the end of the Central American Isthmus between North America and South America. It's at the junction of these four zones. Very mountainous place with deep valleys. All the climatic influences of these four regions interact into play there. So you have a, an incredible diversity of microclimates and of terrains. And because of that, an incredible diversity of ecosystems, everything from lowland rainforest to mountainous cloud forest to tropical deciduous dry forest and then the wetlands, etc. And the wealth of wildlife is just phenomenal. You mentioned twice as many bird species as the whole of North America. It actually also has more butterfly species than the entire continent of Africa. You know, I could give a long list, and the wonderful thing is that this wildlife is everywhere, and it loves to put on a song and dance. <laughs> Sign me up. It sounds great. Let's talk about <laughs> the independent aspect of travel in Costa Rica. First of all, and very quickly, we'll just go through these rudiments. How's the cost of traveling there? It's relatively inexpensive. Um, it has probably the most evolved and sophisticated tourist infrastructure of anywhere in the Americas, and certainly for its scale, that's true. And there's nowhere in Central America compares. And because of that, there's intense competition, and this keeps the prices down. Hmm. As an example, you get a lot of backpackers going to Costa Rica, surfers, etc. Anybody looking for a $10 a night hostel will find at least a dozen hostels now in San Jose, of which at least half a dozen offer immense quality, amazing quality for a mere $10 with swimming pools, Wi-Fi, internet, etc. Could a nice place uh, in a nice little town near the beach get for $50 a night for a double? For $50 in some places will get you a really very nice place to stay. Can we go out and eat well for $10? Absolutely you can, sure. You know, when I'm researching my guidebook, I'm usually budgeting maybe $5 for a lunch. A good seafood lunch, you know, sea bass and a garlic sea bass, mm. probably 5 to $10. Mm. If I want to hire a local guide, what would I pay for half a day to have a local guide show me around? Well, um, let me just back up before I give you a price there. It's very important to think in terms of local guides, particularly because most people who go to Costa Rica do go to see wildlife. And because of the dense rainforests, etc., and a lot of the wildlife being camouflaged, it's often not easy to see. So I always recommend that people who are interested in seeing wildlife hire a guide at some stage because the guides tend to have eagle eyes. They have an ability to see the wildlife that's quite incredible. And then, of course, you know, most of them are fluent in English, and they're imparting this incredible knowledge about these wonderful creatures. So what would they cost? You can get a really good guide for a day for $50. Wow, and I bet that's a great source of employment for local people. Smart young people want to use their language and their expertise, get hired by a, a tourist and be their guide Friday for 50 bucks a day, huh? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, because of there's such enthusiasm amongst Costa Ricans for this incredible natural asset that they have, a lot of, of younger people go into guiding as a career. And so there's no shortage talking with Christopher Baker, uh, the author of The Moon Handbook to Costa Rica. Christopher, what about red tape? Do Americans need a visa or just go there with a passport? Uh, just a passport will do, no visa. And is there any language barrier? Very little. It would be only in the backwoods that mm -hmm. you find uh, yourself, uh, you know, in an environment where nobody speaks English. Their education system prioritizes English as, uh, you know, as the foreign language. And then anybody working within tourism speaks pretty much fluent English. Sure. Hey, we have Kurt Kutai on the phone in Seattle. Kurt, how are you doing? Hi, Rick. Thanks for your call. i got to mention Kurt runs a, a local tour company called Wildland Adventures, right, Kurt? Correct. And, uh, Kurt, you've been listening to Christopher talk about independent travel. Go ahead, take a minute, uh, Kurt, and make a case for um, taking a tour around Costa Rica. Not your tour company, I mean, we can learn about that, but just sure. in general, uh, taking a tour as opposed to going independently. Well, taking a tour, uh, first of all, you know, implies having a guide, so that's the first thing. The other thing is it being organized, a lot of people only have a limited amount of time when they go on their vacation, so a tour manages your time so you see and do the most as possible, within the range of vacation that you have. And for a lot of people, it's just 10 days. So in Costa Rica, the key there is to go to a variety of different ecosystems, you know, a, a rainforest near the lowlands, a highland cloud forest, and most likely for a lot of people, a beach area. 
So let's say your your typical customer would have 10 days, Kurt, and you would want to give them that sort of three-pronged attack, looking at the three complete different zones. If they want to spend a little more money and go to a little more remote area, we would send them down to the Osa Peninsula, Lapa Rios Lodge, or if they want to stay in a really interesting, different kind of place, a Corcovado Lodge tent camp, which is sort of a la African uh, style uh, tents right on the beach, surrounded by Corcovado National Park rainforest. Um, then there's the Arenal Volcano, and that's just north of San Jose, up in the central mountains. So you have the mountains, the cloud forest, and the advantage of the volcano. And then from there, you can you can actually go either way. You could go down to the uh, Caribbean coast, to Tortuguero in the jungle, or you can go off to the west, to the Pacific coast, where there's any number of wide-ranging kinds of beach accommodations. Now, Kurt, I imagine my image of tour companies in Costa Rica is kind of upmarket, but with a sensitivity to the culture and the natural wonders, so you're, you know, you're like elegant mountain lodging or elegant river rafting and so on. Is that fair? It's fair. It's true. But there's, uh, some aren't quite so culturally sensitive, I should say, just like right. in any tourism destination. But Costa Rica, as Chris was saying, has really a wide range of, of styles of travel. So, yeah, we're, we're sort of in the more you know, exclusive boutique, beautiful, well-constructed, ecologically sensitive boutique hotels and rainforest lodges. But there's lots of community-based tourism kinds of facilities that are coming up in, in areas where the communities are taking advantage to protect their land and the forest around, and they're wonderful kinds of cultural experiences as well. Now, Kurt, just ballpark, what would people pay, and I'm just talking ballpark in general, for the boutique kind of fully organized tour that you're talking about? Uh, average, what would you think of paying per person per day for an 8- or 10-day trip? About $250. You could 250 to maybe $350 Per average. day. And if you went on your own and you wanted to organize things, my hunch you could do it for half that, but you'd, you'd be screwing around a little more and wasting a little more time. Christopher, what's your take on that? That's about right. Um, we already mentioned that there are accommodations that are a quality for $50, and uh, if you wanted to go it alone and stay at a classy hotel, you know, you're going to be paying $100, $150, and even even higher. So it can add up, but if you do go independently, certainly I'd say, you know, a ballpark um, beginning at about half the price of an organized tour, but organized tours have got tremendous advantages that you lose out on traveling independently. And uh, Christopher Baker, what would your advice be for a consumer shopping around for tour companies for a first-class efficient, you know, um, sensitive to the culture and nature uh, tour experience? Well, I, I'm uh, very well aware of um, Kurt's company, which has got a tremendous reputation for e eco-sensitivity. And it's very important to look for uh, companies that um, have a history of protecting environment and caring for the local communities. And very important is contributing to local communities. Do web searches to compare reports from people who've participated in those tours. Kurt, uh, your company is, your, your website is wildland.com, is that right? That's right. One thing I might add, too, on that in terms of independent travel, is, especially if you're independent, is you've know, you got to really think about booking far in advance because Costa Rica is only the size of the state of West Virginia. It's a very popular destination, and, and it's very difficult to get into places between December and April during the peak season unless you book you know, sometimes even a year in advance at some of the really small places. And, Christopher, a lot of people just want to go down there and play it by ear. I imagine you can do that. What are the pitfalls and pros and cons in your mind? Well, yes, you can do that. But um, some of the places to stay are so popular, as Kurt suggests, that you really do in dry season, which is December through April, uh, early May, you really do need to plan in advance. Now, having said that, when I'm there in, in the rainy season, I do most of my guidebook research during the rainy season, which uh, the Costa Rican Tourist Board likes to promote as the green season. Um, I do so often without knowing where I'm going to end up at night. There's always somewhere to stay and there's always somewhere comfortable to stay. But having said that, if you want one of the nicer, more popular hotels, you better book in advance. What month is the green season? Mid-May through November. So that would be the off-season, really? That's correct. And it's also uh, the season that the prices drop and it's a little bit easier to book a car. If you want to go on your own, you will certainly need, uh, or I recommend that you take a four-wheel drive. If you're going to do a self-drive, it better be a Jeep, a four-wheel drive. And uh, in December to 
April. You better book that in advance also. It's funny. A word of warning to travelers anywhere. A lot of very popular destinations like Costa Rica are maxed out during their four-month busy season, and they can't really. there's no point in promoting that, so they end up promoting the off-season with all sorts of uh, creative sort of superlatives that might be uh, making a little better than what it is. But I think it's pretty clear Costa Rica is ideal and most crowded and most, most expensive from December through April, and then the green season would be May through November. Here's one tip also. Costa Rica has what they call a veranito, or a little summer in July. It's pretty consistent, about three-week dry period, which is within that uh, off-season, but it's, uh, it's a great time to travel there. All right. Kurt, any other words before we say goodbye? Uh, well, I would just say people go to Costa Rica thinking more about wildlife, but anywhere you go in the world, including Costa Rica, you know, get to know the people and get into the rural communities outside of the national parks. All right. Kurt Kutai, thanks a lot. Thank you. I'm talking with Christopher Baker. Christopher is the author of The Moon Handbook to Costa Rica. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Christopher, paint for me the uh, beach scene. Compare the Caribbean and the Pacific Coast, and, and what's your idyllic, ideal beach in, in Costa Rica? Well, you're certainly not going to Costa Rica looking for gorgeous white sand beaches of the Pacific Edel. Um my favorite beaches are actually the beaches where the rainforest is spilling over the sands and the monkeys are there as a welcoming committee when you arrive. And um, Manuel Antonio is the classic example of that. It's probably the most uh, popular, well-known of the national park, but it also happens to have gorgeous beaches, uh, three of them to choose from. Um, <clears throat> the Pacific Coast has got a huge variety of beaches. Um, the the few white sand beaches that exist are up there in the northwest in the Nicoya Peninsula. Uh, the further south you get, the more rugged and remote the beaches become, usually gray, even black sand, brown sand. On the Caribbean, there are very few white sand beaches. Again, it's mostly uh, gray sand. And on both coasts, uh, very important for me, I'm, I've got a, an affinity for marine turtles. I love marine turtles, and most of the beaches along both coasts are nesting sites for leatherbacks, for green turtles on the Caribbean, hmm. for loggerheads, for hawksbill. It's fantastic, actually, to go to these beach sites. And Kurt was mentioning um, doing community work. You can do environmental good also by dedicating a portion of your vacation perhaps to assisting mm -hmm. in turtle nesting sites, protecting the nests, maybe helping uh, collect eggs that would perhaps otherwise be predated by coyotes, etc., and helping incubate and make sure that the hatchling turtles make it safely to sea. Yeah, we have an email from Anne in Bremerton, Washington, and she said, I spent two weeks volunteering with a program to save the Ridley turtle eggs. It was an awesome experience. How would somebody learn about that, Christopher? Well, a good starting point would be the Caribbean Conservation Corps. Their website is www.cccturtle.org. And they are at the forefront of efforts to save the green turtle on the Caribbean coast. Um, they can also steer you towards other organizations that also welcome volunteers. So do I conclude that the Caribbean and the Pacific Coast are equally appealing from a beach point of view, and you're wise not to look for the dreamy white sand beaches, but just uh, go with what uh, the more wild tropical beach scene? That's true, but there are distinctions. The Caribbean is distinct in that it has uniquely a Jamaican heritage. Ah. Uh, the Jamaican laborers who came over in the late 19th century to work in the banana plantations put down their roots. So Bob Marley rules on the Caribbean. And there is Caribbean cuisine, a very Jamaican type of culture. You see plenty of Rastafarians, etc. It draws particularly the kind of offbeat, laid-back surfing kind of put. You know, these so are stereotypical a, uh, images. So it's more of a reggae scene with the uh, hippies and the backpackers and uh, a little bit of. Uh, yeah, and and having said that, there are some really nice hotels right. there, but there are no big resorts. You find. A lot of big resorts, uh, particularly on the Nicoya Peninsula in the northwest on the Pacific, where 80% of all the hotel rooms in the country are located. 80% are on the, the northwest coast? Is Nicoya. It, Nicoya Peninsula. Because it's the driest, it has virtually no rain for six months a year. It has okay. the, the few white sand beaches are up there. And uh, these days, uh, the Four Seasons is in there. It's a $400 a night hotel. We have Trish on the line in Edgewood, Washington. Uh, Trish, I understand you've had some beach experience in Costa Rica? Uh, yes. How was it? Um, it was wonderful. We were in Manuel Antonio um, near Capos um, just a couple of months ago, and we just totally loved it. And we'd like to go back, but I 
wondered if there were some other places that we could visit down there, too, that might be similar, but it was gorgeous, and they do have gorgeous beaches down there as well as a great rainforest. Uh, we'd like to go back probably to Manuel Antonio, but can you recommend any similar places? Well, yes, I can, and um, I would steer you again to Nicoya, to the southwest corner of the Nicoya Peninsula. It has two possibilities, one called Montezuma and one the evolving beach resort of uh, Malpais, Santa Teresa. And like Manuel Antonio, they've got fabulous beaches, but they've also got superb nature experience that is right there next to the beaches in Cabo Blanco Absolute National Reserve. Okay, great. Thank you. Good luck, Trish. Thanks for the call. Thanks. Christopher, tell me a little bit about the surfing scene in Costa Rica. Oh, big time, big time. Uh, It's really the surfers who helped put Costa Rica on the tourist map uh, 15 or 20 years ago, and they are at the forefront of uh, still uh, putting you know some beaches that have been heretofore inaccessible on the map. There are always surfers looking for the next big break, and uh, mm. Costa Rica has dozens and dozens of fabulous rides. In fact, one place called Pavones, near the uh, Panamanian border, has what is supposed to be the world's longest ride. It's uh, at least half a kilometer on a good day. Wow. And would it be a place where a beginner could find uh, instruction and rental gear? Oh, sure. There are plenty of schools. Uh, There are quite a few fairly established, and and I should say that all the, we'll call them resorts for want of a better word. Um, This is not Cancun. Most of the resorts, the biggest one on the Pacific being Tamarindo, are far from being towns. They're large villages, basically. Uh, Tamarindo is a base for surfing, for surf tuition with various surfing schools and uh, surfing hostels. Manuel Antonio also has the same. Uh, Dominical is primarily a surfer's destination and uh, no shortage of options there for tuition. So, And, and the same is uh, the case in Puerto Viejo on the Caribbean coast. All right. Well, no shortage of things to talk about, about the many facets of visiting Costa Rica. Hallelujah, the blessing from above. Eat it in the morning and you eat it in the night and you eat it when you feel like you go lose your sight. I say, Hallelujah, everybody love. Hallelujah, me say, everybody love. Everybody has his own opinion. Some may be right and some may be wrong, but Hallelujah. Everybody love Kalalo, me say. Everybody love Kalalo, Kalalo. It is a blessing from above. More of your stories and questions about travel to Costa Rica are just ahead as we hear more about the eco-paradise of the Americas on Travel with Rick Steves. 877-333-7425. That's our phone number. And you can continue the conversation after the show online in the radio feedback boards at our website, ricksteves.com. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Today, we're enjoying Costa Rica, thanks to Christopher Baker, who is the author of The Moon Handbook to Costa Rica. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. Email at radio at ricksteves.com. Christopher, if you're thinking about the beach scene in Costa Rica, do they have any of these exclusive little hideaways there that just jet-setters go to? I don't know so much about exclusive, um, but there are certain places that are quite remote, and uh, you can fly into them, and yes, they're very nice places. Uh, Kurt mentioned one of them, uh, perhaps the most famous of the upscale wilderness lodges, and that is Lapa Rios. And it was once uh, very much the end of the dirt roads. It's enveloped by rainforest, and it was once uh, really off the beaten track. Since it became so famous, of course, quite a number of other similar properties have opened up around it. But it is still a place you can fly in on a small charter plane and have what feels like an exclusive experience because you are surrounded by rainforest. Uh, I love that place. Just the concept of the rainforest going right down to the waterfront sounds just wonderful. In fact, it reminds me of that Jurassic Park island. Aren't there some islands <laughs> off the coast? Is that where Jurassic Park was? Well, that's so funny. If you remember Jurassic Park, there was a sign for San Jose posted on the beach. That created quite a furor amongst Costa Ricans. But yeah, Jurassic Park was partly filmed in Hawaii, but it was also partly filmed at Isla Cocos, which is part of Costa Rica, even though it's about 300 miles off the southwest. It takes um, two days to get there by ship, and it's permit only to go ashore. It's a wildlife refuge, most renowned for scuba diving. It's got some of the world's preeminent scuba diving 
is perhaps the best sighting in the world to dive with schools of hammerhead sharks. And uh, certainly you are going to be swimming with whale sharks when you're down there at Isla Cocos. Costa Rica is famous for its national parks. They've got a lot of national parks. I've lost count. <laughs> it changes all the time. In terms of national parks, which you know mean includes wildlife refuges, nature reserves, etc., the government itself has charge of several dozen. But then the wonderful thing about Costa Rica is the efforts made by foreigners, particularly foreigners, but I shouldn't discount uh, locals who are concerned for the environment, has been quite profound. So you have dozens and dozens of private wilderness refuges Many of them, that once they get established, they are taken or adopted into the national park system hmm. and gain official protection. And there is no shortage anywhere in the country of these fabulous efforts. And this is what's so fantastic. Uh, Costa Rica did, like all the nations of Central America, have a true problem with deforestation. But in recent years... The rate of reforestation of secondary forest growing back with a potential for primary forest to be in place again in a few decades has accelerated. The amount of land that is forested in Costa Rica continues right now to increase. Wow, and that's the mark of a society that's got its act together, I would think. Yeah, but as I said, most of that is as a result of private efforts. Okay. Tell me what a cloud forest is. I keep in, uh, incurring that when I'm talking about uh, I'm Costa Rica. I'm glad you raised that. Well, there are various kinds of uh, rainforests, and they vary by elevation as much as anything else. So cloud forest is a rainforest, but it is found at an elevation of about 3,500 feet up through 5,000 feet. This is an elevation where typically in Costa Rica, the clouds form on an almost daily, not, not a perpetual basis, but a daily basis and a good part of each day, that environment will be shrouded in clouds. So an incredibly moist and relatively cool environment that results in a distinguishable flora, a distinguishable ecosystem. Particular types of fauna are also associated with it, and most famously throughout the Central America is the Quetzal. And many people go to Costa Rica simply to view the Quetzal, which is probably the most beautiful of all neotropical birds. The male is about the size of a large pigeon. It is iridescent green. And Rick, let me tell you, until you see a Quetzal, you cannot even imagine what it means when I say iridescent green. It is absolutely magical. Wow. And it has, the male has like a, a punk pink hairdo, uh, this entire iridescent green body, and these iridescent green tail feathers that sweep behind it, it like long boas associated with the Victorian madams, you know, with their hats. And it uses those in mating displays, what I call swoop and dive mating displays in April and May particularly. Uh, a dramatic display of not only an incredibly beautiful bird, but an astonishing uh, mating act to be seen. Everybody wants to go to Monteverdi. Monteverdi Cloud Forest Biological Reserve is the most famous of the various cloud forest reserves in Costa Rica. Everybody wants to go there, not least to see a Quetzal. There are easier places in Costa Rica to see a Quetzal. I, I would never steer people away from Monteverdi, but uh, I can steer them to places that they have a much higher chance of actually seeing Quetzals. How do you spell that word, Quetzal? Q-U-E-T-Z-A-L. Wow, there must be a lot of swooping and diving going on in the cloud <laughs> forest. There doubled the amount of bird species in little Costa Rica as in all of North America. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Our phone number, 877-333-7425. Our email address, radio at ricksteves.com. I'm speaking with Christopher Baker. Christopher is the author of The Moon Handbook to Costa Rica. We have John on the line in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. John, thanks for your call. Well, Christopher, you stole my thunder, but I want to first congratulate you on winning the Lowell Thomas Award. Oh, thank you very much. But anyway, we want to go to Monteverde. I need to get the sell on my lifetime bird list, and we're going to try to stay in some of the backcountry huts. Now, I know nesting season is around this time. Is there any time that they shut off parts of the park? We uh, plan I on going in the fall. I'm not aware of them closing down the park at all for any reason associated with cat cells. 
Monteverde is just one of various places that you can see Quetzals. As I said, I'm not going to stay away from it. It's a fabulous experience. And there are tremendous options for lodges, no shortage of good options. But also Monteverde Cloud Forest Biological Reserve is bordered by the Children's Eternal Cloud Forest Reserve and also by the Santa Elena Cloud Forest Reserve. You know, if you're having a hard time trying to <laughs> see Quetzals in Monteverde area, I would steer you down to a place called San Gerardo de Dota, where they have the Quetzal Research Center, which also has accommodation. Okay. Well, we want to see the other 400 species also that are in these reserves. We're quite excited. You will not come home disappointed. Let me promise you that when it comes to birding. Well, very good. Thank you very much. Good show, Rick. Thanks. Good luck on your trip, John. Okay, bye. John said you won the Lowell Thomas Award. Very prestigious. Tell us what that's all about. It's one of nine Lowell Thomases I have actually won. Every year, the Society of American Travel Writers Foundation sponsors the Best of Travel Writing Awards, which are open not just to Society of American Travel Writers members. They're open to anybody in the world. You know, it's in honor of Lowell Thomas, who was a well-renowned North American travel writer broadcaster. And you, of course, have written a guidebook uh, also by Moon to Cuba, right? Yes, and that also got Lowell Thomas for best guidebook. Great. We have Olga on the line in Vancouver, Washington. Hi, Olga. Thanks for the call. Hello, Rick. My husband and I are planning a, uh, a trip and taking our two children, ages 12 and 8, to Costa Rica. And we wanted to know what are the must-see or must-dos to do with children. Hello, Olga. Well, it's a delight. I, I love Families traveling to Costa Rica, not least because I know those kids are just going to come home with this tremendous smile on their face. It's a kid-friendly destination, not just because kids are very welcomed by Costa Ricans, but there's so much to see and do. And it's tremendous that Costa Rica is a place where kids can learn so much about nature. I would be really remiss if I left this show without mentioning Tortuguero. Uh, Tortuguero is a must-see for children. It's a fairly funky village used to be a fishing village up near the Nicaraguan border, but it's a renowned wilderness spot. It's got these wilderness lodges on a lagoon. You can't drive in. You can only take a boat in or fly in. And the guided boat tours through the lagoons, which are like art galleries, if you will, with the rainforest open along the sides, offers a lot of fun. Of course, you're traveling by boat. Tortuguero is also the major nesting site for green turtles and in-season which I believe, if I remember, for Tortuguero, because every place is different in terms of dates. I think July, December, particularly the nesting season for green turtles. One of my other favorites, and it's another must-see for you, is La Paz Waterfall Gardens. This is on the flanks of Poas Volcano. It's within uh, about 90 minutes' drive from San Jose, the capital. And at La Paz Waterfall Gardens, you've got this spectacular setting, but it's got some fun and superb educational things to do. It's got a serpentarium with snakes. It's got a renarium where you walk into a rainforest environment with frogs. You can go fishing in a lake if you want, hiking down to waterfalls. It's got the continent of America's largest walk-in butterfly environment. And quite a few other things uh, there, a replica farm with traditional ox carts and whatnot. Tremendous experience. That's called La Paz Waterfall Gardens. Okay. Sounds like a wonderland for children, Olga. Oh, I... I really excited about it. And one more question. Should we rent a car or should we just use like transfers? Uh, well, it, it's obviously going to depend how much time you have and how fast you want to speed along between different places. Uh, because I love driving and I've had tremendous experiences in driving in Costa Rica, I always recommend the independence that goes with driving. But there's nothing wrong with putting day trips together. For example, if you you know you open your trip in San Jose, there's, you can easily take an excursion organized by a company and go up to see La Paz Waterfall Gardens on a day excursion and maybe combine it with a coffee tour and a coffee farm. It get, you get the whole history of coffee production and a sense of its importance in Costa Rican culture, which cannot be understated. And to do those two as an, a day excursion is very popular. Oh, well, thank you very much. Good luck. Enjoy. Thanks for your call, Olga. Happy travels. Thank you. Bye-bye. Christopher, you've got a personal website. What a website, too. Travelguidebooks.com. How'd you snare that one? Uh, um, I was very lucky. I got in early. I've had travelguidebooks.com for quite a few years. So travelguidebooks.com. People can go there and learn more about your work for all your different guidebooks, including Cuba. Is that right? 
Well, that's correct. I uh, have, I don't know, 15 or 20 guidebooks now with various companies. Good for you. Now, and not just guidebooks. You know, I have my literary book about motorcycling through Cuba. Right. So that's one closest to my heart. Christopher, we've got a few more minutes. I would like to just say a couple of words and have you respond pretty quickly. You know, just a, um, a paragraph to each one, just your thoughts. Rafting, river rafting in Costa Rica. World class. The Reventazon and Array are the two biggest ones of about half a dozen rivers. Zip cords. Ah, oh, zip lines. <laughs> that, that's um, what zipping between trees, zipping across a canyon, um, and there are dozens of options in Costa Rica. So I, I read it costs like 50 bucks, but you're in this beautiful wonderland, and you get a zip through all these different, uh, like spend an hour on a pulley gliding through the canopy of the trees? or, or explain Yeah, that some of these are about two kilometers long these days. Yeah, so this is a, a, a natural wonderland to be up there close to all this exotic uh, flora and fauna, I suppose. Yeah, but don't ever believe the promotional lines about come and explore the rainforest. It's an adrenaline rush. That's what it is. That's pure what and it simple. is. Okay, good. And uh, <laughs> speaking of adrenaline rushes, uh, live volcanoes. Ah, well, Arenal is the the main volcano that's currently erupting, and it's in a very active phase. It's a classic conical cone that rises out of a plain. And there's so much to do and see, not just seeing the lava flows, which is spectacular if you're lucky to find it on a cloudless day or cloudless night. But there's so much to do and see around Lake Arenal, um, Arenal Volcano. Paula from Richmond, Virginia, emails us, says, Where's the, where to stay to observe the eruption of Arenal? Okay, well, uh, oh, gosh, I don't know, 50, 60 hotels there these days. I've got a couple of favorites. Um, Arenal Observatory Lodge, which was created for the Smithsonian Institute to observe the volcano, is uniquely on the east side of the volcano. Unfortunately, right now, the active lava flows are on the west side, but that's also where most of the hotels are. Um, Two to name is Arenal Lodge, a mid-priced property about three miles from the volcano with stupendous views, and the closest one to the volcano itself is the brand-new Arenal Kioro. Um, that's a five-star hotel. All right. And golfing in Costa Rica? Um, it is up and coming. They now have some uh, name brand, by which I mean you know, Nick Faldo, uh, Robert Trent Jones Jr. designed golf courses, perhaps the most famous one being that associated with the Four Seasons Papagayo, which is unfortunately just for guests only. So it's an up-and-coming destination. They have about four or five 18-hole golf courses right now. Uh, spicy Caribbean cuisine versus Costa Rican cuisine. Well, Costa Rican cuisine is not spicy. Um, I spice it up with a local, wonderful local sauce called Linzana, which is like a Worcestershire sauce, but it's a little sweeter. Uh, but down on the Caribbean coast, you do get classic spicy cuisine, very distinct from the rest of Costa Rica, where my favorite dish, for, great breakfast dish, is gallo pinto. That's what the locals eat. It's a rice and beans-based breakfast. Now, when you travel to the deep south of the United States and you get this humidity and this heat, and then you think you go much, much further south to Costa Rica, won't the humidity and the heat get even worse? What's the climate like that way? Isn't it? It just sounds like well, it scare a, people away. <laughs> I remember, I said that I do my research uh, in wet season when it's uh, particularly humid, but I, I survive. Um, it is incredibly varied. Um, depends on where you are in the country and at what elevation. Uh, you can go as high as 14,000 feet plus in Costa Rica. And so they have this tremendous variety. Um, two-thirds of the populace live in San Jose and associated cities in the central highlands, about 4,000 feet average. And it is like a spring-like climate year-round. National Geographic named it the world's finest climate, actually. They named a particular point in the Central Highlands. So much of Costa Rica has actually got a fantastic temperate climate, if you will. The Pacific Northwest is dry for much of the year and hot as Hades. The Southwest near the Panamanian border around Corcovado and much of the Caribbean can be wet and humid almost year-round. So it depends. And when we're thinking about Costa Rica, there's uh, some pre-Columbian gold museum in San Jose. Is that right? Is there much pre-Columbian culture? fantastic one. Yeah, despite the relative paucity of pre-Columbian sites, um, they have a tremendous pre-Columbian gold museum right in the heart of San Jose. And they also have the world's largest collection of pre-Columbian jade in a separate museum called the Jade Museum nearby. So the big museums in the country would be in the capital city, San Jose. 
Yes, that's right. With 1.3 million people. And finally, what's with a Costa Rica rodeo? <laughs> Uh, it is, it's not like your Spanish rodeo. Uh, they don't have matadors and horsebacks. Uh, the, the bull lives to see another day. These rodeos are associated with the fiestas that almost every town has at least once a year. And it basically boils down to, um, a lot of the local macho males have a, a little too much guaro, which is a local rum drink, a little too much of that. They build up their bravado and they jump in the ring with the bull and uh, there are people taunting it and whatnot. That, that's basically what the uh, Costa Rican rodeo boils down to. So I should say, kind of being unfair to them, they do have tremendous horsemanship skills in Costa Rica. The horse is still very important within local culture. And so the rodeos, uh, you know, they're kind of two-part. They have what's called topes, which is a, a display of horsemanship okay. apart from the bull, bull ring event. Ah, that's more what I was thinking about. So if you know where to look, you can get an example of that. Absolutely. And finally, Erica in Hudson, Wisconsin writes, just a nice uh, way to sum things up. She says, my short list of the best of Costa Rica, blue morpho butterflies, birds, monkeys, orchids, dolphins, waterfalls and streams, the best pineapple ever, round stone balls, fresh coffee, Arnold erupting, frogs, sloths, ticos, easy blend of English and Spanish language spoken, and amazing scenery. Sounds like a wonderland, doesn't it, Christopher? Well, you know what? And I've spent an hour here talking with you, and she summed it up very nicely in one sentence. Very nice. Hey, Christopher Baker, author of Moon Handbook to Costa Rica, thank you so much for joining us, and happy travels. Thank you very much, Rick. Que dicen hasta luego y otras dicen adiós. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Special thanks to Mike Boyle at KUCI Irvine for engineering help today. There's more online, including listener feedback and archived audio on demand. It's in the radio section of our website at ricksteves.com. Join us again next time for Travel with Rick Steves. Rick's weekly one-hour radio program, Travel with Rick Steves, airs in more than 100 cities across the country. Listen to podcasts of past shows in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Rick's public television series, Rick Steves Europe, also airs throughout the USA. You'll find the latest on Rick's TV and radio work, as well as his guidebooks and his free-spirited European tour program at ricksteves.com.